Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 11 through 17, 11 through 19. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. While he, Jesus, was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village, as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? There's no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to understand and that you would, um, you would feed us again, Father, that you would challenge uh, uh, the way we think and the ruts in our lives that we get into and the, the sinful ruts that we get into. Father, we pray that that this time would be profitable for your people and for all of our hearts. May every one of our thoughts and meditations be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> so our text begins with a statement about our Savior's travels. It says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. This is the start of his final journey toward the place of his arrest and his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is the beginning of that journey. Once he passes by, the, by uh, Mount Olivet, uh, which we read about in the middle of chapter 19, the final week of this work of redemption will have begun. So keep in mind the intensity of emotion the, and and really the powerful courage of Jesus Christ, our Savior, as he approaches this culmination of the ages, you know, and this, this culmination of his mission to save his people from their sins. So it's on him, and he's perfectly ready for this work, right? He's, um, it's been assigned to him by his Father before the creation of the world, but it but it's nonetheless still a part of Jesus learning obedience through the things he was and was about to suffer. Jesus is still, um, still about to suffer and still being, in a sense, trained for that. Though we know he could not fail, this was still a trial unlike any other human being had ever experienced. He was heading to Jerusalem to become the curse of sin. And that made him the singular object of God's wrath. 
Uh, Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, him, and by his scourging, we are healed. And this is what he's headed toward. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to be falsely accused of crimes, to be mocked and spit upon by mere men, to hang upon a tree, to, to meet on that tree his father's wrath, uh, and, and also to, through all of that, to redeem his people uh, for himself, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And you might think that Jesus would have been getting into a preoccupied and distant and withdrawn sort of mode, spending time alone and focused at that final task that's coming up, but he's always selfless. Jesus is always selfless and looking to give comfort to those who are sick and uh, sinful. So even though he is on this horrific road to Jerusalem, he heals the diseased, right? He gives, gives time to those who are crying out to him. It's, it's beautiful selflessness. It's, it's the depth of kindness, and it is demonstrative of the strength that Jesus had through his entire ministry and the faith that he had. So Jesus enters a village. It's somewhere between Samaria and Galilee, which would put him about 50 miles from Jerusalem, heading south. Uh, There in that city, it appears, there was a leper's camp. And 10 of those lepers, hearing of Jesus' arrival to the the village, yelled at Jesus, um, practicing still the social distancing that was required of them, it says in our text. And what did they yell? They yelled, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So these 10 leprous men are calling Jesus by his name, but also using a title. So they say Jesus, and then they say Master. Uh, The Greek is epistates, which means, really, it it sort of means chief or commander. It was used of someone who had been appointed over you and and therefore is your authority. This is a different word than is used elsewhere that's translated Lord or Master in our English Bibles. That word is kurios. Um, That is... It, which is still translated master in the case of Jesus Lord. This word epistates was used other places for Jesus. Uh, it was used by Simon Peter in response to Jesus telling him to cast the nets on the other side of the boat when they had went that whole night without catching any fish. And um, Peter says, master, that's that word there. We worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. So acknowledging him as commander, chief, I'll let down the nets as you say. The apostles often used this title, Epistates, for Jesus when they thought they were perishing in the boat. As the storm raged, they woke Jesus from sleep and said, Master, Master, that's that word there, we are perishing. And when Peter um, proposed building three tabernacles when Jesus was transfigured, He says, Master, it's good for us to be here. One source uh, said that the use of this term was equivalent to didaskale or rabbi. 
uh, both of which mean teacher. But, but again, I think this epistates is clearly an appeal to authority. It's an acknowledgement of the authority of, of someone. Now, why do these leprous men make their appeal to Jesus using this title? Why would they be pointing toward his appointed command over them? Why not a more familiar term such as teacher or father or just sir? Um, I believe it can only be interpreted this way. Jesus has what they need, and what they need is mercy. He has what they need. They need mercy, and they are asking him to dispense what he has to them. Like a commander in battle dispensing directions or a teacher in a classroom dispensing knowledge, so Jesus, the commander of mercy, is asked by these men to dispense mercy to them. He, he has mercy at his command. He has, as it says in Malachi, healing in his wings. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. He's got that. He commands that healing. And obviously, mercy for a leper means healing. Uh, likely, they knew that prophecy from Malachi and longed for it to affect their own bodies and their own souls. They likely had heard about the report that Jesus gave uh, to John the Baptist through his disciples, Jesus said, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. So these ten lepers want to be cleansed. They want relief from the foul stench of their own decaying bodies. And they want to return to their loved ones. Right? They want to return to the synagogue. They want to be back together with the people of God, but they're dispersed and quarantined. They want healing, and Jesus has the ability to command their bodies to be healed. So in response to their request for mercy, Jesus tells them to do something. He doesn't say, you're forgiven, you're cleansed, as he had done on previous occasions. This time, he doesn't immediately heal with a word or with a balm, but he, he requires them to do what's written in the word of God. In Leviticus, the requirements for lepers. And it says this in Leviticus, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons, the priests. And the priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the affection has turned white, and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it is an, inf an infection of leprosy. And when the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Right? So, so Jesus is telling these men to go to the priests, to go follow the Old Testament law. And if healing from the infection, if healing from the infection had occurred, the man was to go back to check in again with the priests after a time and follow an elaborate liturgy of, of sacrifice. Here's a bit of that from Le Leviticus 14, the next chapter. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Then shall the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live birds, and cedar wood, and a scarlet string, and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As, the, as for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop. He shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. Right, so that, and it goes on from there. There are other requirements, but that's the beginning of the requirements for, for these lepers. So this sacrifice was required by the law and would have been a joy to a faithful Israel, Israelite who had been relieved of the affliction of, of leprosy, of the pain of it, of the loneliness of leprosy. So this makes sense of what Jesus had required of these men. Go and show yourself to the priests. And amazingly and wonderfully, these ten men are healed of their leprosy even as they obey Jesus' command to see the priests. Before they even arrive to see the priests, they're healed, which takes them out of chapter 13 in Leviticus and puts them into chapter 14 of Leviticus, the... the um, after they've been healed. But still, reason to go to see the priests. Um, on they walked to the priest. We don't know how far they got. It, I mean, from the, from the flow of the action, it seems like immediately once they started going there that they were healed. Um, some commentators, I think Calvin makes the point that he thinks they got all the way there, went through the liturgy, and then it was when they were healed that they came back. The text reads, um, seems to read to me that it's uh, certainly along the path. It may have been soon after. It may have been when they were halfway there, but at some point between the priests and Jesus' command, um, they, they are healed. Um, on they walk to the priests, except for one, one of the ten. One man does something different than the other nine. It, it sets him apart. Up to this point, the ten had everything in common. They were all lepers. They all wanted healing. They all had heard Jesus and approached him with faith for healing. They all appeal to Jesus as their masters. They all obey and proceed to the priest. And they're all healed, but one man does something different that distinguishes himself from those other men. When that one man realizes that he had been healed, just imagine that. Imagine getting used to open sores and, and stench and rotting flesh. And then all of that just becoming smooth skin, healthy skin. Imagine the, the comfort that would have come uh, at that point. When that one man realizes that he'd been healed, he begins to dance, right, and shout and praise God, and he stops his progress going toward those priests. 
Text says, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Right, that glorifying God with a loud voice. So he turns around, he's going back to Jesus, and he's like, praise God! He's shouting at the, at the top of his voice, filled with joy. Now, is this a disobedience? Is this a lack of faith? Right, is, is he zealous now in the wrong direction? Right? Should he have not been doing as Jesus commanded in going to make things right with the priest, going through the rituals required by the law? Well, we find out that what he does is thoroughly right. Because the other nine are rebuked by Jesus for not returning to give glory to God. The man wanted, and so, so what I think is going on here, is this man wanted more than healing. He wanted more than healing. He wanted to give glory to God. Right? He didn't, wanted, he, he didn't want just relief. He wanted to worship. Right? He viewed Jesus as more than a provider of good things for his body. He, he, he saw Jesus as a worthy recipient of his praise. I think we can summarize that this man loved Jesus and didn't view him as a means to an end, right? He loved Jesus. And adding to the depth of this situation, the text then says, and he was a Samaritan. Were the other men Samaritans? Jesus points to the extraordinary fact that this one, whom he calls this foreigner, was the one who returned to give him glory, seems to me that the others were more likely Jews. And that fact would underscore the extraordinary deed that this Samaritan had done. He, in a sense, should have been the most unlikely of the ten to give glory to God, to return to praise the Messiah. But remember, Jesus had already ministered among the Samaritans. The woman at the well was a Samaritan. And when Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to her, what did she do? She went back into her city and gave glory to God. And the results? From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. These are the people that the Jews had cut off. These are the people that the Jews loathed, hated. Scripture says the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They despised them as half-breeds. And yet, as a rebuke to the Jews who were cutting off Jesus and rejecting him, he is giving salvation to Samaritans. Here again, if, if the other nine were Jews, and this man that returned was a Samaritan, we see faithfulness from a foreigner and ingratitude and unbelief, even unbelief from the Jews. And perhaps that's the reason they didn't join him in returning to Jesus, because after all, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So what does this say about these nine? 
What does it say about these nine? I think we can say this. They are ungrateful. They are ungrateful. They perhaps were pleased to have smooth flesh and a return to society. They showed that they were more about the perks and less about the God behind the perks. They got what they wanted and they would go through the letter of the law. They would go show the priest. The priest would take this through and then they'd be declared clean and free to go back to their normal lives. They also seemed to be unknowledgeable. They did not give glory to Jesus, to God. They did not recognize, right, the day of their visitation. Um, What was true in the days of Ezekiel are true in the days of Jesus. Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. That remained true in Jesus' day. To the point where when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem, this journey he is finally taking, he weeps for that rebellious house. Even while prophesying their destruction. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day... Even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's two chapters forward. But in Luke 17, in microcosm, this rebellion is demonstrated. The Samaritan and the Jewish lepers had received mercy from Jesus by means of healing, and only the Samaritan gave glory to God. Only the Samaritan rightly returns to Jesus to honor the one who is life himself. It's a stinging rebuke to the Jews, this whole whole situation. What a stinging rebuke to anyone who only wants the goodies Jesus has to dispense without the acknowledgement of his glory. Do you see how this is rampant today, this sort of attitude? You see how this is, this is a temptation of your own heart. Right? We pray to God for physical needs and have joyless hearts in worship. There's so many people who want heaven but refuse to live for Jesus Christ. There's so many people who want healing but will not give glory to Jesus Christ. There's so many people who who want comfort and to be free from loneliness but will not find that in Jesus. They want the benefits of Jesus without the commandments of Jesus. They want what he has but do not want him. desire to have the good things that Jesus can dispense absent from an acknowledgement of his incredible glory, dear brothers and sisters, is called false conversion. And the church today has her false converts. They want to go to heaven. They want fire insurance. They want better marriages. They want prosperity. They want metaphysical experiences, right? They want healing from Uh, cancer. They want friends and influence. They want profound worship experiences. They want to avoid just the hopelessness of the atheist. 
They want good curriculum for their child's uh, homeschool education, right? They want a religious reason to be politically active. They want some sort of reason to, to have a funeral when they die. They want what Jesus can give, but they simultaneously can care nothing about who Jesus is. They only know Jesus in terms of what goodies he can dispense to them. That is the American civic religion. Jesus, insofar as he makes me a successful American and then gets me into heaven when I die. Jesus, on my own terms. Right, Jesus, heal my leprosy, but don't expect me to live a life dedicated to giving glory to you. I'll come to you when you've got what I need, but otherwise I'll be living life according to my own rules. I mean, what a horrible diminishment of Jesus Christ that is. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the, he who was and is and is to come, the image of the invisible God, he by whom and for whom all things were made, Jesus, rather, sugar daddy. What a horrible diminishment of man and of man's purpose as well. Right? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose for which you have been created. You were not created to be a successful American, to know only and always comfort and wealth, to be successful and respected, to get a college education, to declare your expertise on subjects about which you know nothing and bear no responsibility, to have your piece of the pie, right? To be acknowledged by others as the guru of this or the guru of that. No, no matter what PBS or, uh, or public school education or the promise of our generous politicians has taught you, you were given breath so that you would eternally sing praises to Jesus Christ. You are to be a worshiper of the Son of God because He is the bright morning star. You were created for that purpose and he is worthy of all your praise, of all your gratitude because you were a spiritual leper and he healed you. And he owned you way before that because he made you. Have you been healed? Have you been healed? Are you returning gratitude to him continuously? Are you giving thanks to him continuously? That is the mark of the Christian, giving thanks to God. Or in a backhanded sort of way, are you caught up only in the politics of this moment in time? Let's apply it to our moment in time. Right? Have you forgotten that it is God who brings about calamities? And that he does so in order to humble a people. Jeremiah said to Israel, when Israel was, you know, not doing well. <laughs> Exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring on this city and all its towns the entire calamity that I have declared against it, 
because they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my words. I am about to bring on this city calamity. Is that not what is going on in our nation? We for so long have been praying, think of this, we so long have been praying that God would humble our nation for the horrible crime of promoting and protecting the killing of babies in the womb. We've been praying that God would humble us. And now that the nation is being humbled, right, economically and spiritually, in response to our prayer for years, all we can do is get in a huff about this or that government overreach, or on the other side of, you know, today's five-week-old debate, get in a huff about people not taking safety measures seriously. We, dear brothers and sisters, need to just give glory to God. That's what we need to do. We need to give glory to God. We need to be so filled with joy that we have in Christ that we don't need to get in a breathless huff about anything. So let this crisis, whether it is a result of man's stupidity in response to nothing at all, or conversely, man's loving response to a serious threat, discipline you for the purpose of godliness. Let this situation discipline you. Right? Give thanks to God and remember that you have no idea at this point what God intends to do with this crisis. You have no knowledge of that. Nation was crushed by nation. This is Second Chronicles. And city by city. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong and do not lose courage for there is reward for your work. Right? God brings about the dashing of the nations and the changing of the whole world, every kind of distress, but you be strong and courageous. Let's continue to debate important issues, right? Let's continue to exercise our discernment, but let's do so as Christians who believe in a sovereign God. Right, God, believe in a sovereign God who demands that all at some point will bow their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a larger story being written and six weeks of your analysis does not a prophecy make. Right, patiently endure. And, and most importantly, do not be like the nine who, who received such bountiful mercy from God and yet did not acknowledge him or give him thanks. We can be so oblivious to the grace of God, I think. The power of God. We can be oblivious to the power of God. We can be, we can be dismissive and forgetful about the sovereign power of God. And we can, we can be so dismissive of those things that we go about our merry lives not stopping to show him our deep gratitude for the mercy we have in Jesus Christ. Getting caught up, getting caught up in the politics of the moment is one way we do that. And so we mustn't be like the Jews of Jesus' day who had Jesus walking about their environs right next to them, but refusing to recognize him. We want, above all, to be known as thankful believers in Jesus Christ, adopted sons of God, and not primarily as epidemiologists, 
conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, abolitionists, incrementalists, or homeschoolers. We want to be thankful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In every aspect of our lives, we need to be like the one man who turns back to Jesus and gives glory to God. Show gratitude to God who has been merciful to you, a wicked sinner. Right? Show gratitude. He has been so merciful to you. Blotted out all of your sins, clothed you in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Adopted you into his household. Jesus has ascended, going to prepare a place for you to dwell for eternity in a glorious Sabbath rest. Show gratitude. Show thankfulness. Show courage. Show stability when the mountains are falling around the world about us. Show stability and faith in God. Let's pray.